Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of No More Silos. My name is Erica and this is my podcast. Welcome back everybody. Uh, This is an interesting episode. Well, actually, I like to think all of my episodes are interesting. However, I do realize that today's episode is a potentially controversial topic because what I've noticed on social media and in the news recently, people have some really, really strong opinions and views. And a lot of times it has to do with their social location, Uh, not just their physical location, but their socioeconomic location, their ethnic identity, their racial identity, uh, their gender identity, whatever perspective someone is coming from, whatever worldview someone is coming from, that is informing how they see this topic. And the topic today is, well, for us on No More Silos, it is all about the legacy of colonialism and the end times. Yes, and only the way that I can do it here on No More Silos, I have managed to connect the dots between the legacy of colonialism the end times, and are you ready for this? The Palestinian-Israeli conflict that is in the news right now. Now, to be perfectly candid and honest with you guys, I have recorded or attempted to record this particular episode more than five times. I won't tell you how many times. I don't even tell you which number this one is, but I have labored over this because I really want to make sure that that folks see the history, see the the scriptures, see the theology, and understand that we are not necessarily being given all the information on the news media, but I also don't want to come off like a conspiracy theorist and say, well, you know, you got to look on YouTube or somebody's podcast, i.e. mine, to get the real information. So what I really want to do is present to you a couple of resources. And so I have been working on, as I have edited and re-edited what I want to say in the podcast, an ebook. And I hope that you will download this ebook that will be available on our Patreon page probably in the next few days. This podcast will probably release before I get the ebook done. But no worries, trust me, it's coming with links and resources that are objective and factual and books that I will recommend. In fact, I can tell you two of the books right now. It's Practicing Christian Doctrine by Beth Belker Jones, An Introduction to Thinking and Living Theologically. I have an episode that I have actually on the shelf right now where I walk through the book of Hebrews as a resource for understanding Christian doctrine and theology. You know, there's folks when they, they really mean it, especially old school folks, would say things like, all you need is your Bible, and your Bible is all you need. And in a lot of ways, they're absolutely correct. However, what's happened in the centuries that Christianity has existed is people have really made a case for how they interpret the Bible, and it's their interpretation. And we've already talked about this on the podcast before, your Bible translation into your 
native language, mine happens to be English, so your Bible translation, my Bible translation into English, is an interpretation of the Greek and the Hebrew by the translation committee that created it. So I usually operate out of the New Living Translation, but I also read the other English translations like the Message Bible or the NIV, and I grew up reading the King James translation. And as we've talked about on the podcast, sometimes words that were translated into 1611 English don't really have the same connotation or oomph that they have today. And so when I teach classes, uh, theology classes, Bible study classes, or discipleship classes, I make sure we, I teach the students how to exegetically review the text, uh, study their text, and also how to do a word study. Because oftentimes when people have a problem with what's in the Bible, they're stuck on a word. And that word, oftentimes it could have multiple meanings and the translation committee could have chosen a different word or maybe a, a the word that they chose had meaning in the time frame that they chose it, but it maybe has a different meaning today. And so all of that factors into it. So several of my friends have asked me for help with understanding what's going on in the Middle East recently. And last summer, the book by Scott McKnight, which I've mentioned, I think, in uh, earlier episodes this season, Revelation for the Rest of Us, that book came out, and I found that between Beth Felker-Jones, Practicing Christian Doctrine, the second edition, and Scott McKnight's Revelation for the Rest of Us, there and, and the plethora of resources that me as a homeschool mom have accessed over the years to teach American history and world history to my kids. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, I homeschooled my four kids for like 10 years at varying times with varying kids, um, if I can say that, and, and for varying reasons. And so th- for me, the legacy of colonialism and looking at uh, Bible prophecy or end times theology, which is uh, the seminarian word for it is eschatology, uh, eschatological views, really all of that factors into what is going on over in the Middle East right now. And so a lot of people have had posts and shared videos and reels on social media with little small segments of information that are, they come off like little gotcha moments. But what I'm realizing as I've been talking to folks in our church and and friends of mine is that understanding what's going on required a little bit more research than just what I could come up with off the top of my head from a discipleship filter. And then I also realized in my research as I was working on providing a well-thought-out response, that the competing frameworks of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, on the one hand, and the geopolitical worldviews, on the other hand, were clashing. Thus, many Christians are confused by the television media, uh, by television media, social media, our churches. I mean, I've seen a bunch of pastors immediately post right after this latest manifestation of the problems going on in the Middle East, post, I stand with Israel. And then I've had other folks say, I stand with Palestine. And as a person who comes from an oppressed people group in the United States, I am a little bit, I will share my bias up front, I'm a little bit more leaning as I'm looking at the history here, leaning a little bit more towards Palestine in this. However, I want to make sure you understand 
why that is, and that the challenge that we're running into is simply that the state of Israel that was created in 1948 is not the—we're conflating that with ancient Israel in our Bibles. And that's something that's been going on for almost a century, like well over 75 years, but I'm going to say it even exceeds a little bit more than that. As as scholars and, and people were trying to understand, and in an episode we had a, a while back about uh, rapture anxiety, I touched upon this quite a bit. And I want to take time today to explain the four different views. Yes, there are four different doctrinal views in Christianity on the end times, on eschatology. And depending upon where you land in your beliefs about what those four views really determines whether you are pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel. And then let me say this, no one is pro-terrorism. No one is pro-blowing people up just for the sake of blowing them up. I think what we fail to miss sometimes is that when you push people to the brink of maybe extinction or or it seems like state-sanctioned genocide, then people fight back. And how they fight back or how they respond has to do with all of those feelings and things that, that in a history that's embedded in their bones. And so I think that that is a big part of this as well. But let's start first with the word wor- worldview. And I'm going to cover this in the ebook, and I will tell you along the way as I'm talking today because I'm literally looking at my notes based on the ebook that I completed, the content for that. And so I want to make sure I point you to those resources as we talk today. So thank you again for joining me. My name is Erica. This is my Cultural Christianity podcast. And here on No More Silos, our goal is always to remove the way that we think of the compartmentalized or siloed way that we think about world events independent of our faith. Because as a whole Christian, as a whole human being made in the image of God, I want to understand God all around me and what's going on. And so that's what we're talking about today. And so like I said, the ebook is going to be a supplemental resource for this particular episode. And going forward, I think I may start putting together resources on our Patreon page, specifically that reference episodes, certain episodes, or to put it together so that you could maybe do a Bible study around it or have a, um, your small group can discuss what's going on, listen to the episode and then have a discussion. So that's kind of my goal. So what is the word worldview? What does that mean? We've heard that word tossed around quite a bit in the last few years um, by Christians and by non-Christians. It is a by definition, a philosophical filter through which a person sees and understands the world around them. Fundamentally, it's a cognitive orientation that encompasses culture, values, stories, religion, and expectations. And you know what? We all have a worldview. The key is understanding that we all have a worldview and perspective that is informed by our socioeconomic location and our ethnicity, our culture, our values, our stories, our religion. All of these things provide an important context for understanding the current manifestation of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. This concept of worldview has gained significance in our contemporary discussions, particularly concerning the emergence of white Christian nationalism here in the United States. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, too. 
white Christian nationalism is rooted in the doctrine of discovery, which justified European colonial conquest and the African slave trade. And this worldview reflects an ethno-religious identity politics and a defensive stance among a predominantly white Christian majority. Like, let me, let me phrase that a better way, because I feel like that was like word soup. When you say Christian worldview or biblical worldview, it is and has become a dog whistle for white Christian nationalists to say that the American Christian worldview is one that puts our culture as American Christians first or our way of seeing the world first, and then we look at the Bible. As opposed to, and the the other scenario is um, on the opposite end of that might be, well, I have a biblical worldview, so I see the world through what's in the Bible. The challenge with that is, is the Bible's a big book, and the Bible includes wars and crazy stuff that jumped off in the Old Testament that God is not telling us through Jesus Christ in the New Testament to go out and do or replicate. Read the book of Judges. There's some really like crazy stuff going on. And so when we get caught up in not realizing which covenant actually applies to us versus uh, us as Christians versus what's just there in the Old Testament for our edification, for information to say, hey, here's where uh, God had to intervene because the children of Israel didn't follow his instructions. And so we read verses and things out of context. And that's important because when we attach ourselves to a worldview that's based on our ethnicity or our religious identity or our political stance, we have to be very careful what that filter entails. And the legacy of colonialism has shaped conflicting moral visions in American politics and continues to influence contemporary debates over American identity and history. I mean, I I live in a school district. In fact, uh, I'll tell you, I live in a school district right now where they're outlawing books. I mean, they're like, you know, two steps away from starting to burn books over here. And it's become so tenuous that my son's performing arts teachers will no longer suggest monologues for their drama classes because they don't want to get into trouble. So they're telling the kids, hey, here are the steps to go finding a monologue on your own. And hey, parents, you can go buy a monologue book on Amazon. And here are the top five books that are out there. And this is the criteria, as opposed to what used to be that the the kids could go through a bin in the classroom and look for a monologue that was already pre-approved by the teacher that already met all those that criteria but because the teachers don't want to get fired over a monologue that might have a controversial topic they're not providing it anymore everything has to be vetted through the school board now there's a uh, 3 month process i heard the other day and so and, and this so this debate over American identity and American history that's going on really begs the question, what are people afraid of if they learn about the kids learning history? What are we afraid of if they learn 
what else is in the Bible and understand better that it's because of Jesus, we don't have to do that anymore. Because of Jesus, that doesn't apply to us. Because of Jesus, we're just simply to love God and love people and show that we love God by how we love people because that's what Jesus actually told us to do. So Christianity has significantly significantly influenced worldviews, particularly in the Western context. And so the Christian worldview centered on Western Europe has influenced the development of cultural and national identities. It has constructed narratives that assert the superiority of European civilization and Christianity echoing historical justifications for colonial expansion and subjugation. And it is within this framework, the entanglement of Christianity with ethnicity and nationality has contributed to the formation of distinct worldviews that continue to impact contemporary sociopolitical landscapes. So, Where does revelation fit in this? Where does Christian doctrine fit in this? Well, I'll start with a quote from Revelation for the rest of us. The mission of Jesus is organic and not colonial. The mission of Jesus is organic and not colonial. The challenge before us today is to understand how to make disciples of Jesus who are equipped and informed to exegetically interpret scripture, soundly centering Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ as the filter through which they live, through which we live. It is insufficient to practice, uh, it is insufficient Christian practice to ignore history and culture when reading the Bible. In fact, as theologian Ali Henney recently observed, saying my Bible is my worldview is a thought-terminating cliché that keeps people from engaging with their reasoning or thought. It's a way for people to avoid giving account for themselves. The mission of Jesus is organic and not colonial. And so the resource that I'm going to provide on on our Patreon page, will aim to provide historical and cultural background and context for understanding the eschatological perspectives that are informing the worldviews of Christians in America as we interpret the current conflict in Palestine and Israel. That's what today's episode is all about. And let's, um, let's look at now the legacy of colonialism. So we've talked about the doctrine of discovery and how that basically gave rise to this idea that Eurocentric, the Eurocentric version of Christianity was superior and Europeans were superior to everybody else, that they had to go and bring Christianity to uh, to the so-called heathens, to these people that are living in other places. But I want you to, in the back of your mind right now, think about what you know already about the Indian Removal Acts, the Trail of Tears, how Native Americans and indigenous people in the Caribbean and South America and North America were actively and violently uprooted and moved from their homes. The legacy of empire building, the Christianization of the indigenous peoples, manifest destiny and the subjugation of Native Americans. When I 
hear the folks on the news talk about the settlers in the West Bank, I think about the settlers here in the United States in the 19th century who were in covered wagons with their families, seemingly innocently traveling across the country to go and and take on this this new land and tame this wild land. And then I think about how the Native Americans revolted. And I think about how in the 1940s and 50s, there were cowboy and Indian movies where the Indians were the bad guys and the cowboys had a white hat and they were the good guys. And then how when I started to study American history in high school, I realized that, no, it's not that black and white. It's not that simple. And so I will provide you with a resource about the Trail of Tears. And I want you to think about that legacy of empire building, how colonialism was a prominent aspect of European expansion and American Christianity emerged from this historical backdrop. This is why you have people walking around saying Christianity is the white man's religion, because in the context they understand it, it is. But they're wrong, because Christianity did not come from Europe. The way that we weaponized Christianity, the way that European powers colonized the Americas and Africa and Asia, um, weaponizing Christianity as a tool for cultural assimilation and control. Indigenous peoples were often coerced into adopting Christianity and erasing their own spiritual traditions and cultural identities. And this process served to legitimize and perpetuate the power dynamics of colonialism. This is the legacy that exists. This is the the legacy that exists even in the Middle East. But there was another part of this equation uh, beyond colonialism, and that is the rise of nationalism. Historically, the evolution of what is someone's nationality can be traced back to the various transitional processes, which include politics, economics, and religion. These changes throughout history influence the definition and understanding of what is someone's nationality. Nationalism uh, is a powerful ideological force, and it's had a significant impact on political movements all over the world. And the idea that people naturally fall into distinct national groups has become a dominant presupposition of our modern society. But if you have ever studied European history and you look at a map from 2,000 years ago to 1,000 years ago to 500 years ago to 300 years ago to 50 years ago to, yeah, Even in the last 50 years, it's changed. In our lifetime, the Serbian and Croatian war, uh, what's going on in Crimea and the Ukraine right now, the map has evolved. When the Soviet Union had most of Eastern Europe under their nationality, there were all these ethnicities contained therein. Uh, World War II changed the map. World War I changed the map. My favorite thing when I do, uh, when I start a new Bible study is to start with a Bible atlas. Why? Because it is important for us to see where people lived and how people have migrated and moved around. All of this influences nationalism because ethnicity and our perception and preservation of ethnicity doesn't always align with political boundaries. 
And that's played a a pivotal role in shaping the narratives and the struggles of various ethnic communities. Think of people in Scotland or Ireland. Um, Think of how the political lines between Northern Ireland and uh, the part of Ireland that's remained part of Great Britain, like how that mattered. Or people who are Welsh um, and still British. It's a it was a big deal, uh, and I learned this watching The Crown for Prince Charles before he was King Charles uh, to learn Welsh to be able to give a speech in in Welsh because he's the Prince of Wales. Like ethnicity matters. So I want to introduce some of you and remind others that there are different ethnic identities within Jewish communities. And this is why it's I've, I've had to record this episode so many different times because I really want to make sure y'all hear me on this. And this is not anti-Semitic to say. In fact, even if you look up Semitic languages, that includes Arabs. <laughs> it includes Jewish communities. It includes people who are Christian, who are Muslim. It includes people from a variety of places in the world. Links to that in the Patreon uh, ebook. So PBS did this great documentary, um, gosh, probably more than a decade ago. It's called The Story of the Jews, and I'll have that linked um, on Patreon for our subscribers. There are three groups, though, I want to introduce you to. There's the Sephardic Jewish community, Beta Israel, and the Ashkenazi Jewish communities. These serve as just three examples of how nationalism has impacted the migration, dispersion, and cultural practices of distinct ethnic groups. So we learn in the story of the Jews that Judaism, one of the world's oldest monotheistic religions, has a long and intricate history within the African continent. That's Beta Israel. And contrary to popular belief, the presence of Judaism in Africa predates the transatlantic slave trade and predates Christianity even. It has deep roots in a variety of African societies. Just like Christianity existed in Africa before the transatlantic slave trade, before the 1492 uh, version of colonialism and the doctrine of discovery, the presence of Judaism in Africa dates back over two millennia, 2,000 years, with historical evidence pointing to Jewish communities established in various regions of the continent. The migration of Jewish people from the Middle East and the Mediterranean into Africa contributed to the spread of Judaism. Notably, the Beta Israel community in Ethiopia, in modern-day Ethiopia, also known as the Ethiopian Jews, has a history that traces back to biblical times, and they even claim descent from the lost tribe of Dan. You may have heard us talk about um, the uh, cults that exist in the United States, one of them being Hebrew Israelites. That's kind of a, a mythological version of that is what kind of fuels the Hebrew Israelite movement in the United States. So, you know, sometimes, a lot of times, myth has some truth <laughs> in it, and that's how they get people. So, But the Ethiopian Jews are very real and very factual and very much have uh, throughout history faced periods of prosperity and adversity. Um, They had a presence in the medieval period. 
um, in North Africa um, that was very vibrant in Morocco, in Tunisia, in Egypt. Um, There was significant cultural and intellectual exchange. And during the colonial uh, era and the subsequent political upheavals of the 20th century, when I say colonial era, I'm talking about colonial Africa, which most uh, African countries today did not achieve freedom from their European colonizers until the 50s, 60s, even as late as the 70s, and some even later than that. So there are Jewish communities in Africa that have existed that have always pretty much been there. Um, And that's important. And so I'll have links to, to that resource. But the migration and dispersion of these Jewish communities have played a significant role in shaping history so let's turn now. So we've just talked about the Beta Israel. You have the Ethiopian Jews. More on that in um, in the ebook. Then you have the Sephardic Jewish community. They trace their origins back to the Iberian Peninsula, primarily Spain and Portugal today, uh, where they thrived for centuries. They were all doing great. Uh, even a golden age of uh, existed that began in the ninth century. That's where they trace their the timing back to the ninth century um, A.D. And it lasted until the Spanish Inquisition in 1492, when the Jewish people were expelled from Spain. Now, what's interesting is you have the Moors, uh, African uh, Arab descent people, um, Muslim, Islam was their religion. The Moors ruled Spain for centuries, and the Jewish people were able to continue to thrive in Spain. They continued, uh, Christians continued to thrive in Spain. And so it is in that backdrop of this um, movement against the Moors, uh, the taking back of Spain by the Christian rulers, all of that, you know, studying the, the history of Spain kind of gets into in more detail about this. And so the, the Sephardic Jewish community faced persecution they were forced to convert to Christianity or leave the country. Uh, in fact, on our honeymoon in Curacao, I toured, my husband and I toured, the very first synagogue that was built in the quote-unquote New World by Sephardic Jews who left Spain um, because they were like, well, I don't want to convert, so they left. The expulsion led to the dispersion of the Sephardic Jewish communities across a variety of regions, um, including the Americas, including the Ottoman Empire, the Balkans, and the Middle East. And so these communities maintained their distinct ethnic identity um, while integrating into the local cultures and adopting new languages, such as Ladino, which is a Judeo-Spanish language. Now, unlike the Sephardic Jews, our third group, the Ashkenazi community, has its origins in Central and Eastern Europe. The Ashkenazi community emerged during the early medieval period, and its population significantly expanded during the Middle Ages. They settled in regions including Germany, Poland, Russia, and other parts of Eastern Europe. Now, this is significant because this is the group that uh, was kicked out of Russia. This is the group that was uh, in that time period in the early 20th century that were uh, that Hitler tried to get rid of through the Holocaust. This is this is that group, and this is the group that started the Zionist movement. 
that the Zionist movement came out of. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But so what else can I tell you about the Ashkenazi Jewish communities? They faced both opportunities and challenges. They experienced periods of relative tolerance and prosperity, as well as episodes of persecution, discrimination, and genocide, as I mentioned with the Holocaust. These circumstances led to further migration and dispersion of these uh, communities to different parts of the world, including the United States and what became the state of Israel and other Western cult, uh, countries. Now, the Palestinian side of this evolution of nationality, so we've just talked about three different Jewish ethnic ethnic groups that kind of emerged in the last 2,000 years or more. You've got Beta Israel in Africa, the Ashkenazi in Europe, the Sephardic in Spain, and everybody's moving around. And as communities grow and nationalities change because the political boundaries change and evolve over the centuries, people's allegiances to different nationalities change, of course. And the Palestinians are no different from this. Their nationality is rooted in the history of the Ottoman Empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire is uh, a complex and multifaceted subject. Why? Because they uh, existed from around 1516 AD until the end of World War I. Under the Ottoman Empire, the area that we call Palestine today was just part of the empire. Like literally, if you watch a video, and I've got videos on uh, that I'll have on the resource from his, the History Channel, um, Encyclopedia Britannica, you can look at maps. Ted Ed did a history, uh, you know, TED Talks, uh, their education educational channel did a, a history of the Ottoman Empire. Um, the guy that does the uh, charts, useful charts, also did one who controlled Jerusalem the longest. These are all really great resources because you have this 500-year period of Ottoman Palestine, and there's, you know, things changed. The, the Jewish state as a political entity didn't exist, God, for centuries. And so when we conflate this new and improved version of Israel to the ancient Israel of the Bible, we're missing a whole lot of history. And that's why it's important to take to check out what's going on with the Ottoman Empire in that period. The Ottomans displayed a level of tolerance towards Christian and Jewish religious interests with the Greek Orthodox patriarchy in patriarchate in Jerusalem uh, that was recognized as the custodian of the Christian holy places. Additionally, the Ottomans permitted European merchants to engage in trade in the region. So because they're there on the coast of the Mediterranean, there's trade going on. Jerusalem continued to be an important city, not only for Islam, but for Christianity and Judaism for centuries, it never stopped. Everybody just kind of figured out how to work together. For the most part, they had their different sections, and it depended upon which empire was controlling it, whether it was the Roman Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Ottoman Empire was the last one. And then Actually, the last one was the British Empire, but we're not there yet in my notes. So, um, understanding the historical evolution of nationality and its relationship with citizenship provides valuable insights into the complexities of identity formation and political movements. As I've said, nationalism is a powerful force and it influences the way individuals perceive and align themselves 
with particular ethnic and national groups. And that's how we really begin a conversation of understanding. There's ethnicity, there's nationality, and then there's political history that tells us who was in charge of that area over time. And so let's talk a little bit about this Zionist movement that I mentioned earlier. The Zionist movement emerged in the 19th century. It had a profound influence on European involvement in the Middle East and the development of the Suez Canal, the complex Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, really at its core, um, fundamentally, the details come out of this Zionist movement. Because the Zionist movement aimed to establish a Jewish homeland in Palestine, driven by historical and religious connections to the land. So that somebody looked at the back of their Bible and said, these are the political boundaries of Israel in ancient times. And the Europeans wanted to kick the Jewish people out of Europe. They were already being persecuted in Russia. Uh, they were, and that's the story of many American uh, Jewish families. They can trace their lineage to ancestors who immigrated to the United States because they were Russian Jews that had to leave Russia be, uh, because they were under persecution. And then others trace their lineage to the Holocaust because they were being persecuted in Germany. And so they came to the United States or went to other parts of Europe. And all of this was going on in the late 19th century. And that movement, the Zionist movement, can be traced back to the rise of nationalism in Europe. The political boundaries were changing. There had already been a couple of wars, but over here in the United States, we weren't paying attention because we were dealing with the Civil War and uh, our own issues. <laughs> so we don't really, we don't internalize or really recognize the history that was going on in Europe during this time period. But there was this guy, Theodore Herzl, who wrote a book um, in 1896 that called for the establishment of a Jewish nation. It was like, and, and it totally makes sense, right? Hey, we're not wanted here. We understand that our ancestors uh, at some point lived over there in Israel. Can we go there? And so the impact of the Zionist movement on the European involvement in the Middle East was significant because the European powers saw the potential in supporting a Jewish settlement in Palestine as a means to extend their influence in the region. This support was fueled by various factors, including religious sentiment, imperial ambitions, and geopolitical interests. One key event that occurred as a result of the Zionist movement was something known as the Balfour Declaration of 1917. The Balfour Declaration of 1917. Basically, what happened is the British government expressed support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And it marked a turning point in the Zionist movement as it gained formal recognition and support from a major world power, which was the British Empire at the time. The other world power involved in all this is France. So basically what happens is, is they come in and they re- align the political boundaries because after World War I, the Ottoman Empire has been defeated. Well, all their land, now the European powers of France and Great Britain have, and they carve it up 
and they decide this is what's going to be here. And so there's a great crash course video from about eight years ago that talks about this, and I'll have that linked in the resource as well. You can also find this information um, discussed on online encyclopedias like Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, and of course, Wikipedia has pages, but even the PBS learning media resources that I used to teach my kids world history has a whole thing about this uh, Zionism and the Balfour Declaration. So the Suez Canal um, is linked to the Zionist movement. The canal, which connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea, was a crucial strategic economic asset for the European powers that allowed them to expand their influence in the Middle East. And that all of that was fueled by the Zionist movement, because the Zionists were like, we want to go back or we want to go to Israel. Now, I want you to think about this in a bigger context of how colonialism influences uh, what was going on in that time period. The British were master colonizers. They had colonized most of Africa. They had colonized what became eventually the United States. But look at what happened in the Trail of Tears to the Native Americans. They are relocated. They are so-called Christianized, um, they are put on reservations, and then this is what they, this is the playbook that happens to the people who existed, who already were living in Palestine. And these people were not just Muslims, they were Christians and they were Jewish people. Uh, They may have been Sephardic Jewish people, they uh, may have been, um, no, the Beta Israel people, they were minding their own business over in Africa, they didn't care. But This is what the Zionist movement comes in and says, we want to have this homeland. The European powers say, okay, and everybody ignores the fact that there were people already living there. So this is the complexity of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, because people weren't nationally identifying as Palestinians, just like the Native Americans didn't identify as Indians until Columbus misunderstood who they were when he landed over here in the Caribbean and said, oh, these people that are already here must be the Indians that I was looking for to go get spices from. And so it stuck. That's not what they called themselves. And that is not what the people who lived in Palestine called themselves. And so they were nationally, they were part of the Ottoman Empire. Now the Ottoman Empire isn't there anymore. And the British come in and say, nope, we're going to call you Palestine. Or nope, by 1948, the United Nations creates, ignoring, mind you, the tensions and conflicts of the Arab population that already was there. Uh, In 1948, they make things worse and establish the state of Israel. And if you've ever looked at the maps over the years of what constitutes the political boundaries of the state of Israel, it looks just like a gerrymandered congressional map from Alabama or Georgia. Have you ever noticed that? That's a problem. That's why people are fighting. And yeah, the fighting is violent and it's ugly and nobody likes it, but the Native Americans fought back and they scalped the people, and the people, and, and the uh, um, European Americans demonized them, uh, demonized the Native Americans, and said that they were bad people. Why? Because their rules of war were a little bit different. They were fighting for their ethnicity, their culture, their national identity as they understood it, because they were already here. 
So even if you check out the resources on Native Americans, you'll find that there's this parallel context that is the legacy of colonialism. Now, let me jump ahead here and now talk about what it is about the end times in eschatology and the theology that American Christians have that is adding fuel to this fire. So the Zionist movement had a significant impact on the eschatology of American Christians, particularly within certain Protestant denominations and in very specifically with a lot of white evangelicals. Eschatology refers to the study of the end times and the belief in the fulfillment of biblical prophecies. And American Christians, especially with those with the dispensationalist or premillennialist perspective, view the establishment of Israel and the return of Jews to their ancestral homeland as key events leading to the second coming of Christ. Now, why is that a problem? Well, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but we know especially those of you who listen to No More Silos regularly, that the rapture theology, somebody made that up in the late 1880s. Do you remember what I just said a few minutes ago, what year the Zionist movement (laughs) kick-started? 1890s. So swimming in the pool of rapture theology was the Zionist movement. And so that piqued the interest of the American cultural Christians on the second coming of Jesus, the end times, if you will. And that's what is fueling a lot of the debate. Ultimately, that viewpoint is why Americans feel so strongly, American Christians, about what's going on. And it adds a complicated layer to this conflict that's already, that, that's happening there. Um, so, one of the things that as, as a Bible teacher and scholar that I always try to focus on is a Christ-centered hermeneutic. In other words, interpreting everything in the Bible through Jesus. Jesus is the center of it all. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm following him. I'm making disciples per his instructions to by loving people and demonstrating how I love God through loving others because that's what Jesus said do. There are four different ways that people interpret, that cultural Christians or Christians interpret the book of Revelation. Um, to One is literal and the other is not quite so literal. And because of how the literal interpretation of the book of Revelation leads to misinterpreting scripture, we have these four different views on the end times. And I deep dive into that, into the ebook. But let me uh, share with you, and and there's a resource that I'm including from logos.com. There are four divergent views on end times theology. Let me go ahead and define those for you, and then we'll wrap up with some resources or some thoughts about discipleship in that context. The doctrine of eschatology, or last things, is a Christian teaching about heaven, hell, earth, judgment, the second coming of Christ, and the kingdom of God. Eschatology is about God's ends for creation, his ends both in terms of time and in terms of goals, God's good and final purposes for his creation. And a key scripture on that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 22. Um, and again, check out our episode on rapture anxiety that's more 
resources there. But the first one I want to tell you about is dispensationalism. Popularized by the theologian John Nelson Darby in the 19th century, it emphasizes a literal interpretation of biblical prophecies and deep dives um, the into distinct dispensations. Um, it divides history into these groups or dispensations or categories, and it believes in a, people who adhere to the dispensationalism believe in a future seven-year period known as the tribulation during which Israel will undergo intense persecution. According to this belief system, the rapture will occur before the tribulation with believers being taken up to heaven and dispensationalists see the Zionist movement as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and a crucial step forward to end times. That is view is what's fueling the American Christian interest in what's going on in the Middle East. Now, in his book, uh, The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, Daniel Hummel illustrates or illuminates how dispensationalism, despite often being dismissed as a fringe apocalyptic movement, shaped Anglo-American evangelicalism and the larger American cultural imagination. So there's another book resource for you. Um, Premillennialism, let's give you another definition. Premillennialism is another common eschatological perspective in American Christianity, which is similar to dispensationalism, but may not adhere to its specific timeline. Premillennialists believe that Christ will return before a literal thousand-year reign on earth, and they also view the reestablishment of Israel as significant as it aligns with the biblical promise of a restored Jewish nation. This view holds that Christ will return before the millennium, uh, which is a period of a thousand years of peace and prosperity. This is also the group that believes in the Antichrist, and their scriptures, they have scriptures supporting this view. Everybody's got a scripture supporting their views, by the way. Um, And they have a very pessimistic view of the end times. Post-millennialism, which is our third category, our third way that people look at the end times holds that the world will gradually become more Christianized and improved through the spread of the gospel. This perspective does not place as much emphasis on the establishment of Israel or specific end time events. The post-millennial theology believes that after a thousand years of peace and prosperity brought about by the spread of the gospel, Jesus will return. It looks at the world with optimism and expects positive changes as we draw closer to the millennium. According to post-millennialists, the world will gradually become more Christianized Christianized until the second coming of, of Christ. And they reference verse, uh, scriptures in Isaiah and Matthew to support their view. Now, what's interesting, and I think and it should not be lost on us here on No More Silos, that St. Augustine of Hippo, Martin Luther, and John Calvin, just to name three major theological influences in Western Christianity, they fall into the fourth category, which is amillennialism. It is a belief that there will be no literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Instead, amillennialists consider the millennium a symbolic representation of the present age, where Christ reigns spiritually in the hearts of believers. This view interprets the millennium as a symbolic reference to the kingdom, 
reign of Christ, which is both already here and not yet fully realized. Amillennialists hold that the tribulation is ongoing and that the second coming of Christ will take place at the end of the present age, and it's supported in scriptures also in Revelation and in Matthew. So this is why I did this podcast. Because dispensationalists and premillennialists and postmillennialists live on a spectrum of, on the far end, conspiracy theories. On the other end, uh, they're very, they, they believe in the rapture theology, the idea of the rapture that came about in the 1880s that nobody else believed in before them. Like it generally was not a thing until the 1880s. And so timing being everything, the Zionist movement was able to take advantage, whether obviously not intentionally, but take advantage of the environment that was there theologically. Amillennialists, in, in their view, there's not a stark contrast between Israel and the church. Rather, the church is a spiritual Israel because Christ is the true Israel. Did you hear that part? Christ is the true Israel. This does not mean that the church has replaced Israel, but instead that the church is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham that his offspring, Jesus, would bless all nations and people groups. And the key passages that support that are John chapter 5, Romans chapter 8, 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And again, it's notable that representatives at there are theological representatives, including Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin. Uh, and this is in the article on Logos uh, that explains what is eschatology. These are the three of the biggest theological influencers in Western in the Western faith. They all adhere to amillennialism. So that brings me back to where I started today the book of Revelation, and understanding Christian doctrine. Too often in the evangelical world, or even in just any Protestant cultural Christian environment, we have not done our homework on what we believe and why we believe it. This is the environment we're in, why people are deconstructing their faith, why people are saying, I need to reconstruct my faith, which has been a theme on No More Silos for the last, well, since we started. So how then should we be reading John's revelation? There's so much new scholarship around studying revelation that it makes sense to read and study for yourself. If you really want to put current world events in the proper theological context, then a better understanding of revelation is going to be necessary. Otherwise, anybody in the media, whether it's YouTube, social media, um, your local news, national news, Wall Street Journal, whatever, are able to offer a convincing argument for why their view matters. And and yes, uh, the standpoint of the world leaders complaining about just, you know, the violence and the destabilization politically, nobody wants that. But you have to remember, that's what they do. They stabilize areas and they destabilize areas. They get rid of world leaders and they take away, they they put in world leaders. This is not for us to sit and get caught up in conspiracy theories about who's, uh, you know, the big giant chessboard in the sky. But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, understanding 
revelation, understanding the last book in the New Testament and why it's there and what we're supposed to get out of it is going to be key to understanding what's going on in the world today and not being fearful or, or being um, misplacing our, our, our judgment. Let me put it that way. So in Scott McKnight's book, The Revelation, uh, Revelation for the Rest of Us, he observes that we are missing the point of John's revelation when we read it through the filter of the millennium framework. Um, the first three things, dispensationalism and pre and post millennium. We're literally asking Christians, pick door number one, door number two, or door number three. What he does in uh, he, in his book is he challenges us to reconsider our understanding of John's revelation. He suggests that when we read it through the filter of the millennium framework, not only do we miss the point, but he takes a moment to use a thought-provoking analogy. Um, well, actually, let me back up. You can. Re- I want you to read the book, so I'm not going to give away everything. Revelation is not a mere riddle to solve. It's a prophetic call to follow Jesus as dissident disciples. And I define that in the in the ebook. So I'll I'll leave that there, but I also want you to get this book. He talks about the seven churches in Revelation. He highlights their significance and how each church represents an issue within the early Christian community that exists even for us today. Love disordered, uh, love disordered, teachings distorted, worship corrupted, and behavior inconsistent with Jesus's commands. And it's a reminder for us today that we must strive for faithful discipleship even in our own communities. McKnight emphasizes the importance of public discipleship, a concept that aligns with the idea of mission being organic, not colonial. It's not about escaping this world, but actively engaging with it. As he points out, revelation is not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. When Jesus says um, that we're to be, uh, or yeah, when Jesus talks about being in the world, not of the world. Paul talks about that in Romans, I think. We're not trying to escape. This escapism theology that, oh, things are so bad, we can't wait to get to heaven because it's an escape and then we'll be with Jesus. Well, that's not good theology. That's not what it actually says in Thessalonians, in Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. The subtitle of this book, of Scott McKnight's book, A Prophetic Call to Follow Jesus as a Dissident Disciple. A dissident disciple is a person of hope someone who imagines a better future world and then begins to embody that world. McKnight points out three principles, actually four, but I'm going to give you the first three because, again, I want you to get this book and really read it. Three principles for reading Revelation. It is not written for speculators, for those looking for a magic decoder ring to interpret newspaper headlines. It's written for dissidents, for followers of Jesus, ready to challenge the powers of world and empire. And it requires imagination, engaging our senses and our minds with the performance that is this revelation, this apocalyptic story, with all its rich images and intriguing characters. And number four, that fourth principle, that's what revelation for the rest of us is about. Um, a couple of other things I want to share with you about that. John does not adjudicate how to engage in pro- in politics. Talking about John, um, the writer of 
revelation. Instead, John instructs Christians how to discern the moral character of governments and politicians and policies and laws. John takes the stance of a dissident disciple who lives out a story unlike anything the world has to offer. And he expects us to think differently. He expects us to think theopolitically. That's the point of Revelation. But as we modern Christians don't take time to understand theology enough to do that, um, we miss this point about public discipleship. In our American cultural Christian context, we've been taught that our relationship with Jesus is a quote-unquote personal one. And when actually salvation is a community-creating event, we have not been discipled to follow Jesus the way that Jesus taught. We've been discipled to think that the government, um, or to use terminology the New Testament church would have understood, we've been discipled to think that Caesar can save us. That's why you have all of these people who are pushing so hard for the government to promote and make into law Christian policies about everything from abortion to what books your child can read in school. Another great resource for you is N.T. Wright's Revelation for Everyone. Um, So I have a link for that in there. And the last book that I mentioned, which is Practicing Christian Doctrine, an Introduction to Thinking and Living Theologically by Beth Beth Felker-Jones. She says, in their resurrection, hope means embodied practice, embodied practice. She also recommends studying St. Augustine, John Wesley, and N.T. Wright to help us to practice resurrection in the here and now, to be people who embody our witness to God's love and spur one another to praise the Creator, people who are holy and happy, who are not controlled by fear of death, and who trust in God's grace as the remedy for sin, people who live in intimacy with God and people who bear kingdom fruit and exercise dominion by working well and with delight, offering up our lives to the one whose love works in new creation. When she talks about this concept of resurrection hope and its implications for our embodied practice, I want you to hear Emmanuel, God with us. Our next episode is going to be about uh, about Christmas. In the embodied, the way that God embodies humanity, he, the way that he comes in human form, Emmanuel, God with us, the way that the analogy of the body of Christ, that we move and live and have our being in God, the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. This reminds us that our faith is not something abstract or theoretical, but it's really something that is lived out in our everyday lives. That's what embodied practice as a Christian ultimately is. But the legacy of colonialism and this idea of being raptured away says that we are going to be absent from all of this. But that, but God created this. This is what God created. Jesus comes to reconcile that. And so it's important that we embody our witness to God's love, living in intimacy with him, bearing kingdom fruit. And it's about working well and loving others. The book of Hebrews points us to a theology of of good works that is predicated on our love for God. Like, how do you demonstrate that you love God? Well, you do good things. How do you demonstrate that you love God? You do, you do good things for people. 
And the challenge that we're seeing with all this violence that's going on in the world in different places like the Sudan, which is completely being ignored as a humanitarian effort right now because people are not doing the good things. So our next episode, as we approach the Christmas Christmas season, let us reflect on the wondrous mystery of the incarnation. God, in his infinite wisdom, he chose to enter the world as a vulnerable infant, embodying the theology of incarnation. And in this act of humility and love, he demonstrates the depth of his relationship with us and invites us to contemplate the profound implication of what it means that Jesus walked among us. His presence was among us. So thank you for joining me on this journey through uh, history of colonialism, the legacy of colonialism, and learning about eschatology and how all of that gives us understanding and historical context behind the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and why as believers in the incarnation of Jesus, it matters that we equip disciple-makers to interpret scripture in both spirit and in truth. Thank you again for joining me today on No More Silos. I hope you'll check out our Patreon page and keep and if subscribe to it. Please subscribe to it so that you will be notified as soon as the resource is available with all the links to the stuff that I talked about today. Follow us on Instagram at Cultural Christianity and again on Patreon at No More Silos. Thanks for listening. Thank you.